We're going through the book of Matthew. A lot of you know that have been around here. If you don't, that's where we're going to be at. We're going to be in Matthew 10, so you can open your Bibles there. Um, let, me, let me just say this, too. Um, as someone that I'll never forget, kind of my first time being back in or in, in church, I couldn't find anything in the Bible. If you need help finding it, just look somebody next to you and say, where's this Matthew thing? Where's chapter 10? If, if they don't know, just shake your head at them and go, come on, you can do better. You know, <laughs> But... Um, you know, if you need help, just know that. Like, we're, no, all of us at different points have to figure out this Bible thing and even where stuff is. So if you need help, just ask anybody. But what we've been trying to do is we've been trying to go through this idea of what does it mean then as a follower of Jesus to start to learn to apprentice with Jesus? And part of choosing that term is we use terms like follow Jesus or be a believer or different ones. But I think we forget that the whole goal of Matthew is that he was taking these people along with them to show them how the gospel works. He was putting it in action. And so it was much more of like a trade than a classroom, man. He was going out. And if you can imagine it, like him as, you know, an electrician or a plumber or something going, no, 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 man, you're twisting it wrong. It's, you know, righty, tighty, lefty, loosey, moron, you know, or whatever it is. And, but there's this way in which he was showing them how the gospel functions and how it was supposed to, to, to kind of work its way out. He was apprenticing these guys. And so we, we've been talking about all these amazing realities of the kingdom of heaven and how it's being brought and this announcement that Jesus is making as this one who's truly God and truly man and coming into this world to announce the goodness of God coming in the person of himself. And in chapter 10 now, he's turning this corner and he's now going to look at these 12 disciples. He called them his 12 disciples, which he calls the apostles. And he's now going to send this message with them. But first, he's going to say kind of like, okay, now you need to go out and do it. I've, I've walked with you. You've seen me. I've showed you how it worked. Well, now you're going to go out two by two. That's why they're kind of listed in, in pairs of twos in verses one through four. As now, this is, this is your job. And then they're going to come back to him as any good teacher would do with his students. But in this, this was kind of the outline that we had from chapter 10. And I don't know, maybe some of you felt last week like it was kind of drinking from a fire hose, but I did all 42 verses, man. We, we just went through it. I mean, but I didn't take like three hours. So, you know, it wasn't bad. It was only two and a half. So if you're new here, this is today's going to be closer to three hours. Just kidding. But there's just this side of it. That was kind of the, the way it all broke down. But the one thing that I wanted to get across to everybody, this mission is glorious. And this mission is amazing. But don't you dare think for a second that this mission isn't hard. You cannot study the life of Jesus and not see that advancing the most incredible mission in the world, as glorious and as awesome as this message is, it requires people to understand. It requires us to count the cost. It is going to be difficult. And so anybody that's sitting here right now, I'm so glad even if you're not a follower of Jesus, because if you're here today, you're going to learn about the greatest thing ever, the gospel of Jesus, that people have died to advance. Let me tell you something, though. If people have died to advance it and died even knowing Jesus, in other words, they weren't fools that were doing this, that means you can believe this message today. But for those of us in this room that are followers of Jesus, man, it's going to be hard. Now, what the other thing is, I think, off of this particular outline that I wanted you to see is kind of the characteristics of Christ and the characteristics then of what his apostles are going to look like. And I would even say this. This is then the characteristics of what disciples, of these, these apostles, or these disciples, or these, these apprentices of Jesus are going to look like. 
On one end, right, Jesus was ordinary. Like sometimes, you know, we see the pictures, you know, that have been passed down of like Jesus holding something and holding his fingers up. And you're like, dang, he looked kind of regal. Jesus came from one of the most ordinary places on the planet. From an ordinary family in, in an ordinary part of the world, he was ordinary. But don't get this wrong. Matthew's telling us he wasn't just anybody. This is the Messiah. He was going to change the world. And then he chose 12 different people. We know one of them betrays. We're going to learn that one in there. But the other 11, they were just normal people too. They were ordinary, but when the Spirit of God landed on them, watch out. They were focused, but they were to be focused not on results, but on faithfulness. We can't control results, but we can be faithful. They were hated for his name's sake. He was hated for his name's sake. Therefore, they were, and we're going to be hated for his name's sake. But I think the passage we're going to get to today where I really want to go is I want to look at this idea, though, of learning to rightly be fearful in the fire. That's one side of it. We're going to look at the fear of God. And then on the other side of it, rightly loyal in the turmoil. We're going to talk about loyal love today. That's really what I want to go and I want to nail in on. And this whole thing, the, the thing we learn at the very end of it is, man, we know the outcome. But let's look at this first one for disciples. What does it look like to be rightly fearful in the fire? Well, to be rightfully fearful in the fire, he'll even say this. And look down in verse 26. If you got your Bibles, you can look there. He says, based upon what I've said, that's why he uses the word so, I want you to have no fear of them. I don't want you to fear. Now, the interesting part about it is, is that we know that when we're fearful, then we're going to have a tendency at the very end, look down at verse 33, if we are someone that's fearful, we're going to potentially be someone that's going to deny Jesus before men. And he says in there, then I will deny you before my fathers in heaven. Now, we're not talking, again, there's moments in which we have moments of weakness. Peter had a moment of weakness in which he denied Jesus. But if the ongoing pattern of a person's life is, is that they deny Jesus, his point is, is you don't get my gospel. But the question then we have to ask is, who is the them? Who are these ones that we're not supposed to fear? Well, the them points us back up into verse 25. You can see that in there. And that there were going to be groups of people that were going to malign, like they were going to malign Jesus. They were going to malign followers of Jesus. And the word kind of just means to defame. That if you choose to follow Jesus like Jesus was defamed, you're going to be defamed. And again, I just, I, I laugh all the time when we in Christ, as Christians are so shocked when people defame us, like, oh, I'm so surprised. And Jesus is sitting here going, no, I'm not surprised. I warned you this was going to take place. But the issue now that he's going to go after is with these people, and we'll just throw that word defame in there. We'll, we'll take it from there and we'll put it in verse 26. So have no fear of those who defame you like they did me. That's kind of the idea. Don't fear him. Now, what's the fear, though, that he's talking about? Why is it that in that particular context, we should have no fear? Well, the answer is found in that little word for. He's going to explain, like, why, why shouldn't we have any fear? He says in there, here's why you shouldn't. Nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. 
Now, what I think he's talking about in this particular context is he was saying to them, I understand there's all these people out there. And in fact, at this very moment, when Jesus was beginning to carry out his ministry, he is, all the different Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders are beginning to kind of get in cahoots together underneath the surface. And they're beginning to plan. They're beginning to malign in a way to defame Jesus. You're going to see this. They're going to ask him questions to try to defame him. He understood that there was all kinds of things going on under the surface that he was going to face and that they they were then going to face, and in facing that, he says to them there, don't fear him. Don't fear him. A couple weeks ago, a guy came in. He's not, a, he's not a part of Cornerstone, but he just came in devastating. He looked at me, and he's like, what are we going to do? There's underneath everything, that there's these agendas, and there's these forces going on within the United States. He goes, what are we going to do? I go, we're going to rely upon a God that knows everything that's going on in this world. And those people that are doing all these different things, one day Jesus says about it, and this is what I think he's doing there, they will be revealed. They will be shown. And so all of you that are out there worrying about some agenda, whatever the agenda is that's out there, don't fear that. And even in some ways, it's not just hidden agendas, but sometimes it's the things that we worry about that are just hypotheticals. Right now, so many people that I'm running into, they're like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? The market could crash. Yes. Do you understand? Like, there could be this group of people in power, that group of people. What are we going to do? We as Christians, all of them are set against us. And Jesus would say, no duh. But I think there's something bigger going on here. The reason that we're not supposed to fear is he's giving us a picture of who God is. Why shouldn't we fear? Because our God is an omniscient God. He knows all things going on in this world. There is nothing that's secret from him. No matter how people try to hide, no matter how they try to do different things to coerce their agendas into it, you cannot hide anything from God. Not only that, but he is sovereign. What does that mean? That means he is in control. He is king. He reigns over all things, which means all those little things that are covered, they may think they're getting away with it, and God may allow them to think they're getting away with it to accomplish his purposes, but our God as sovereign cannot be thwarted in what he's doing. Our God is judge. Meaning all those that may be judging others, one day they won't just be judging others. They will stand before the great judge. And if they are not found in Christ, they will be ones who are to be pitied more than anyone. But not only that, our God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. There is nowhere where our God isn't. And I think what Jesus is doing in the verse, the reason that you don't need to fear it's because of who your God is. He says, so therefore, verse 27, what I want you to do is just go tell in the dark, say in the light what you hear whispered. You just go proclaim from the housetops. You as my people, because our God is who he is, you don't need to fear. Just do what I've asked you to do. Announce the kingdom of heaven that has come to this earth. The king has arrived. Bend your knee to that king today. Just go do it. But what if people don't worry about people? I'm God. I am sovereign. I am omniscient. I am judge. I am omnipresent. You just go do what I've asked you to do. He repeats again, do not fear. And this time he says, those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. 
Well, on one end of it, I ain't going to lie to you. If somebody tried to kill me, I, I would be at least concerned. <laughs> but that whole death thing kind of has like a, a, a thing to it that causes me to go, oh, maybe we should like flee. His point here is though, what if it gets to a point where you can't flee, that all these systems are against you, everything works against, and the only thing now is to face the reality of death, and specifically the idea of this death is death of dishonor like he would face. What am I supposed to do? His statement in there is do not fear them, rather, look down in there, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. See, on one end, understand this. They may be able to kill us, but the whole point of 1 Corinthians 15 is we may die, but because there's resurrection, you put us into the ground. We're only one day going to raise. You cannot stop the will of God in bringing his people to the intent for which he's done. So we may lose our life, but we might lose it in this life only to find it in the life to come. There's another side of this too, is they may take your life, but one day those people will stand before the very one who can cast soul and body into hell, that idea of the whole self. They may do this to you, but understand one day they will face the king. So therefore he says in there, don't fear. Well, what is he telling us about God? God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. We may kill others or others may kill us, but he says to them, they have no control over where you end up or what's gonna happen. Only our father has that capacity. He's creator, meaning on one end of it, my dad used to say this to me, I brought you into this world and I can what? <laughs> but the other part of it is he's just. He knows what to do. See, I think one of the things that's starting to, even in my own view of God, but I think even as I hear people talk about this world and this world being out of control, it's losing the fact that our God, Jesus Christ, reigns as king. We as Christians have got to stop succumbing to this fear in this world that somehow makes us think that our God is up in heaven fretting over what's going on in this world. He's not. He is in absolute control, bringing all things to its wonderful end. And I promise you, though Jesus died one day and rose and went to the Father, he is coming back. His kingdom will be established. There is nothing that can thwart him. Christians... Do not fear. Now, on one level, I'd be like, dang, Jesus, that's good enough. But then he gives us verse 29. Look at this. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Well, why are you telling us that, Jesus? Well, he says, not one of them fall to the ground apart from, look at that word, your father. Now, on one end, man, he is painting this just grand picture of this great God in front of them and all of a sudden in the greatness of who he is, the absolute ruler of the universe, he tells them who that absolute ruler is. He is your father. There's a tenderness and there's a care in this. He says, do you understand that every sparrow that ends up dying, your father knows exactly that moment that it happens. And then even this next one, he gets it to, again, going from this smaller statement. He says to them, not only that, but he knows the hairs of your head are all numbered. And if you're like me, they're becoming less and less every day. <laughs> but he knows that. 
He knows the most minute, small things that are happening, and he's your father. He's moving from the lesser to the greater. If he cares about them, well, how does he feel about you? And he says, based upon that, then look at verse 31. The fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. How valuable? Jesus Christ came and died for you. That is how valuable. First Peter, later on, he talks about in chapter one, he says to them, you are blood-bought ones with the very blood of Jesus. You are that significant and special. That's how your father feels about you. So your father might be omniscient, he might be sovereign, he might be the judge, he might be omnipresent, he might be omnipotent, he might be the grand creator, he might be just. But on another level, I love this, when it talks about this idea of you are more valuable than sparrows, your father is good, he is infinite, he is faithful, he is merciful, he is gracious. That's who your God is. And cornerstone, we have got to believe that. We can't succumb to what the rest of the world seems to be doing of this fear and insecurity. I've read the end of the Bible. Jesus wins. All is good, but don't miss it. This is going to be tough, and it's going to be hard. But our God was reigning, is reigning, and will reign. Now, what do we do with that? Well, a guy named Albert Martin, he wrote a book called The Forgotten Fear, which I've only been able to thumb through, but I found some of the things I want to just share with you. What do we do with this idea of fear? Well, he says in there, there's a legitimate sense in which the fear of God involves being afraid of God, being gripped with terror and dread. If you've ever read the Bible when somebody stands before God, they don't go, oh, look at you, God, you're so cute. They fall to their face in terror. We have to remember who this God is. He's not my little buddy that I've taken on adventures. He is the grand, glorious ruler of all things. He sits in unapproachable light. At his command, everything steps into existence. Our God is great. That's why it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. That's why the wrath of God is being revealed against those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. You don't want to mess or toy with this God. And one of the verses we oftentimes quote is, wait, 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 but there's no fear for those who are, who, who are in love because those who have been perfected, they cast out fear, right? For fear has to do with punishment. And yes, on one end of it, when we no longer face the wrath of God because of the work of Jesus and having faith and faith alone in that, that is absolutely true. We no longer fear punishment, but that does not mean we don't fear. See, in Philippians 2, it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with butterflies and rainbows. No way. Fear and trembling. But then he says in there, well, why? Because it's God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his great pleasure. See, there's this other side of it when Albert Martin was talking about it. He said, the dominant theme of fear, which is peculiar to the children of God, is the fear of veneration, honor, awe with which we regard our God. 
It's a fear that leads us not to run from him, but to draw near to him through Jesus Christ, gladly submit to him in faith, love, and obedience. The purpose of God's fear is not to drive us away, but to draw us near him. When I was a kid, we always used to go out to these people's house, and I hated it because they had these giant German shepherds. And I remember going out, and we were kind of introduced to these dogs. And right when you're like eight, nine years old, a German shepherd looks like this grand, like, monster wolf thing. And they had like four of them. And so the guy, like, says, come over here. I want to introduce you to my dogs. And I'm like, <laughs> and my dad's behind me doing this to me, you know, and you're standing there. There's these dogs looking you right in the eye, freaking out. And he's like, you know, let them smell you. Let them do all these different things. And I'm like, okay, I still don't like them. But all of us then were playing in the yard at one point, and a few of us decided to start to go out, to the, out of the yard, and I remember the dogs going, Grrr, and we all froze. And one kid decided to go, and three of those German shepherds ran, cut them off, started growling, and bringing them back to the porch. Why? They were bringing them back to the safety of where they were intended to keep them. The growl of God for those that are in Christ Jesus is not a growl of punishment. It's a growl of a father who's jealous, who desires for us to draw near. You'll see this all throughout the Bible. The purpose of God's fear of his people is to draw them near. But how do I grow in this fear? That's the question I've been asking myself. How do I grow in this fear? Well, one of the things that you need to realize is, is that you can grow in the fear of God. And by the way, you're going to learn, I hope today, it's an awesome thing to grow in the fear of God. In Deuteronomy 31, he's talking to this group of people and he says, listen, men, women, little ones, sojourners within your towns, I want them to hear and look at that, to learn the fear of the Lord your God. I want you to learn this. He even says to it, I want you to teach it to your kids. Why? So that they will learn to what? Fear the Lord your God. This fear thing is something that can be learned, which therefore means we need to understand how is it that we learn to fear God? Well, here's one of the first things that it's important for us to understand to become these, these fearers of God, these ones that are not going to be afraid to proclaim God to the world, is that on one end of it, we need to understand that it's only given to followers of Jesus. If you are somebody to hear that does not know Jesus Christ, you've not come to him by faith and faith alone, you will never know the fear of God in this way that I'm about ready to talk about. The first thing you have to understand is, is that you must be a follower of Jesus. Now, why do I say that? Well, in, Jude, in Jeremiah 32, 38 through 39, he's talking about this new covenant that's about ready to happen in people. And in it, he says, they shall be my people. I will be their God. And look at this. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. Look at the very bottom. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will be the growl of God to keep them near to me. So it's something that has to be given to you on one end of it. And it's given to us through the work of Jesus. But the other one is the fear of God is in direct proportion to your time in Scripture. Now here's why I would say that. Deuteronomy 17 He's talking to the kings of Israel, and he says to them that in verse 19, it shall be with him, and he shall read it, that being the law, him being in the word all the days of his life. Why? 
that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. In other words, if you really want to learn to fear God, be a person of the word. The fear of God is, number three, it's fueled through thinking about God's greatness. You see this like in, in Psalm 86, 8 through 11. There's none like you among the gods. Oh, Lord, no, there's none that will do works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, oh, Lord, and shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O oh Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart, look at this, to fear your name. One of the things that I do on a regular basis is read books about the attributes of God. Two of my favorite books that I've ever read, one of them is The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. If you've never read that one, it's a super simple one. If you want to be somebody that learns to fear God, see his attributes, see who he is, be enamored by the greatness of who he is. But the other one is this book called Knowing God by a guy named G.I. Packer. One of the things I've learned, A.W. Tozer, G.I. Packer, if you're going to be a great writer, then you need to have two initials and then your last name. So I am officially going into my sabbatical saying, my new name is T.R. Nicewanger. <laughs> but now, in a level of seriousness, you cannot fear what you do not know. And sometimes what we need to do is go just place ourselves before the greatness of God so that we understand what it means to fear. A couple years ago, I took my kids on a drive and we went to the Grand Canyon. And I remember this, one of my kids said, I don't know who, like, why are we just going to look at some stupid hole in the ground? <laughs> so we got to that little hole in the ground and I pushed that child of mine right up against the fence. <laughs> I was gonna grab by the legs and hold like this, but I thought, you know, I don't want to go to jail. <laughs> but I think what the word of God does is the spirit of God does a work in us. He does grab us by those heels and just hangs us over the greatness of God and says, behold your God. If you want to fear him, you need to begin to understand who he is. But not only that, the fear of God is solidified by walking with God-fearing people. That's a word we don't use anymore. He's a God-fearer. But I think that's really true. In Proverbs 2, man, you have this where Solomon is writing his son, and he's talking to them, and he says, look, my son, if you receive my words, treasure up my commands with you. In other words, if you do with me, if you walk with me, if you begin to learn from me and be around me, look at the very end, verse 5, you will understand the fear of the Lord and find knowledge of God. In other words, if you really want to know the fear of God, hang out with people that understand it. Let them just absolutely take you to those places of what they've learned about the greatness of God and bring it to bear on you. The fear of God is also increased through praying for it. You see this like in Nehemiah 1.11, O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. God, give us more of that. But here's the other part of it. The fear of God is made real through practicing God's presence. I was thinking about it this morning, and I don't think about this enough. Coming up onto this stage, I'm coming up, and it is my job to speak on behalf of God. He's present. His spirit is dwelling amongst us. 
we have to learn to begin to practice that presence. He's here. He's listening and watching. I think one of the greatest reasons that we struggle so much with sin and keeping them private is we don't think our God is present. Oh, he is real and he is there and he is with us. And even when we enter into difficulty, the reason that we don't have to fear is because he is there. You see this like in Psalm 145, the Lord is near to all who call on him. This idea of prayer, he call on him, he will come near to you. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. Nehemiah 111, oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Psalm 147, his delight is not in the strength of horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. Psalm 25, the friendship of the Lord is for, look at this, those who what? Fear him. Now, saying all that, people will always come to me and say, oh, how is it that, Todd, you share your faith? Why is it you're just so able to share your faith. Well, let me be honest with you. There are many times I have not wanted to share my faith. Holy cow. I remember I was sitting across from one guy and he was waxing all eloquent and I could tell, man, our conversation was I was gonna look like a moron potentially and I didn't know what to say and didn't know what to do. And I backed off. I, in an essence, in a weird way, I did deny him. That's not the pattern of my life. And I would say the reason that I love to share about Jesus is not because I tell myself, Todd, don't fail. Todd, don't fail. Todd, oh, please don't fail. I think the reason that I'm able to talk about Jesus is because I've made it a point in my life to draw near to him. See, here's the mistake we make. We think to ourselves, I'm going to go after fear. I'm going to learn what it means to fear, 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 fear. I'm going to go in there and I'm going to not, I'm going to make sure that I don't deny him. I'm going to always do these different things. And we forget the fact that the reason that we don't do those things is because we've been near him. I've always found that your perspective on the greatness of Jesus always reflects your willingness to talk about him. But the problem is most of us have a vision of Jesus that looks like this. See, Jesus, in many ways, is kind of my little buddy. I take Jesus along with me, and we go on adventures together. <laughs> not only that, but when I come to church, I, I worship him, and in a weird way, it ends up not being worship. It's more like me doing this. Oh, this Jesus thing is awesome. But Jesus isn't my little buddy. See, the more that I'm near him, I realize that I'm not bringing him along for adventures He's calling me to his adventure. Jesus isn't an action figure. He's the king. He sits in the very throne room of God. He's above all things. And so I think what's going on in this particular passage is so important to understand is that we will face trials, we will face persecutions, we will face suffering, we will face conflict. And if you don't have a perception of God that, that God's word and God's people and God's spirit fuels your understanding of him, you will begin to wrongly direct your fear because Jesus will only be this big, but our problems will seem so immense. 
The outcome of that then is not only do we wrongly direct fear, but then we're just going to have a predisposition to deny Jesus. And then we just get into this cycle of things in which now we don't even want to speak on behalf of Jesus anymore. But for those people that when trials and persecution hit, when things begin to come at us, and we begin then to perceive God through a biblical lens, we see the greatness for who he is we begin to rightly direct our fear, not to an action figure, Jesus, but to the great one that sits enthroned, to which angels declare glory, glory, glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who was and is and is to come. He's not just anybody. He is the king that is majestic that sits and reigns above all things. He's not this. He holds all of life in his hand. All things were created by him and for him. And there is nothing that thwarts our king's will. That's how we need to see him. And when we rightly see him and direct our fear in that way, let me tell you something. I don't care what anybody thinks. I will tell you about the king. Why? Because I want you to know that king. This king that sits enthroned isn't just this despot that sits far from us, but instead he came to us in the person of Jesus. He died, was buried, he rose again so that we might come near to the Father, so that we might find grace and hope and experience the reality that all humanity has longed for. So today, if you're sitting here and don't know Jesus, today is the day to bend the knee to that great king who has paid it all. And in paying it all, you might draw near to that God and not see him as some evil, awful despot that sits above all things. He sits as your very father. That's who our king is. If the Lord is on my side, what can man do to me? If the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, the son of man who is made like just grass? So in other words, let me say this. We don't need to find fear. We don't need to figure out how to not deny Jesus. We need to draw near to God. And as we draw near to God, gain a correct view of God. And as we gain a correct view of God, learn to fear God rightly. And as we begin to learn to fear God rightly, you will acknowledge Christ. And this pattern that then begins to get set up, you start to experientially learn that we don't meet Jesus just by sitting in a classroom. We don't meet Jesus just by going and watching shows or listening to podcasts. We don't meet Jesus just by showing up on a Sunday and hearing sermons. We meet Jesus out there, engaged in the world, helping others to begin to know him because you will learn then who our king is by how you engage in his mission and experience the joy of fearing him right and seeing people then the way it talks about in the Old Testament is just mere grasshoppers. Our God reigns. One of the things that I've realized for myself on a personal level and why I need to go on sabbatical is, oh, lately I've been struggling with fear, not fear of God. Isn't it, isn't it weird? Like a lot of you in here, I fear you. Because I know some of you are going to leave here today and go like, oh, Todd's message was stinky. He didn't do a very good job. He wasn't very funny. <sighs> he wasn't like all thoughtful and 
pointed like my guy that I listen to on my podcast. He's not as smart as him. Why? Because I have a huge fear of failure. I have a fear of rejection. I have a fear of man. And one of the things I've learned from my time away right now is what I need to do is not go learn to not fear you guys or not fear the world that I live in. I just need to go draw near to Jesus. That's what I need. In the world that we're entering into, we don't need to fear our circumstances. We just need to draw near to God. And as we draw near to God, his fear will find us. Now here's the other thing that I've learned. What should we say about these things? Well, if God is for us, what? But what's fascinating there is he's speaking about love. See, Jesus isn't only talking about fear, and I'm going to go through this last part of it kind of quickly because it all kind of relates together. Because here's what I found. Whatever you fear oftentimes reveals what you love. Do you know that? I am massively fearful of something happening to my wife and my kiddos. So guess what? I love them, and oftentimes I love them wrongly. I want to protect them. Make sure they're okay. They're my little precious. I need to keep them everything good. And there is a place where me as a dad, I am to protect my family. I am to be a part of their life. But let me tell you something. I am not to love them more than God. My loyalty, my loyal love in the midst of my turmoil, and this is the thing we always find out. We find out what we love like we find out what we fear when turmoil hits and disciples rightly are loyal in the turmoil. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, Jesus promised, and we talked about this last week, that we're going to bring a message that people aren't going to like. It's a message that says Jesus is king, you're not, bend your knee, come to him by faith. And people don't generally like that message because they want to be king of their world. But into that now, I think there's so much incredible truth. And he's going to talk about this idea that whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will find it, for my sake, will find it. Well, what is he talking about there? I don't want to lose my life. I want to, I want to find it. What does that mean? Well, in one in that word, it's important to understand what it means. That word destroy is used up in verse 28, and it's used again down in this particular passage as lose. So let me put it in this way. The one who finds his life will actually, look at that word, destroy it. If right now you are frantically trying to find life apart from God, apart from a passionate love for him primarily, let me just tell you this, you will destroy your life. If not in this life, I promise you in the life to come. But whoever destroys, and this word is, is to just to sacrifice, to say, this is not my life. My life belongs to God. It's a, it's a Galatians 2, 2, 2.20 reality. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but now it's me living as if Christ is in amongst me. I live for him. That particular person will find it. But in this, though, his whole point is, is it's going to be exposed. What do you love the most? In this particular case, it's not that we're not supposed to love father or mother. It's not that we're supposed to not love sons or daughter. Or even in that passage in verse, 30, in verse 28 or 38, this idea of whoever does not take up his cross and follow me, that's speaking of loving my own life. It's not that we're not supposed to love those things, but look at that word more than. It's learning to love the great God of the universe. Well, what does that mean? 
To love more than is to see the value of. See, the whole way through this, you'll see this, where, G- where Jesus is talking to them back in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, wherever your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He talks about this idea then of also your treasure being the re- very reality of what expresses your heart, shows what your heart is about. He says to seek first my kingdom and my righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. In other words, it's not that we're supposed to hate. It's not a Hebrews kind of idiom that's used in, in the book of Luke. The idea is, is to make him the absolute treasure of your life. Well, how are we going to do that? The only way that you learn to treasure Jesus above all things is what we talked about with fear. It's drawing near him. Here's the point of my message today. You don't have to find fear. You don't have to find love. You don't have to find life. You don't have to even avoid destruction or avoid denial. You need to draw near to God, and when you draw near to God, all those other things will find you. See, the reason that we love Jesus is because the more that we see him, we see the value of who he really is. One of the things that always hits me is whenever I do a funeral, first of all, on one end, like, there's a brokenness, there's a sadness, but then there's a jealousy for the people that have died that know Jesus. Can you imagine their first vision? The most beautiful ever Jesus standing before them saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into this kingdom I've prepared for you. What must that be like? Oh my goodness. Like I was just doing a funeral this last week and I was thinking about this, what this young man saw, like all of us. I looked around and there was true sadness, right? Brokenness. I mean, I was sad. I was trying not to cry and I'm trying to figure out how to pray and lead all the while. I'm fighting back tears on one end of it and just when the guy started to speak, I'm like, okay, I gotta think about something that doesn't make me cry and I just envisioned what it was like for that young man. The moment that he took his last breath, he was ushered into eternity and he saw King Jesus that is the hope of what we've all longed for. Right now we see him through dim mirror, but one day, God's people, we will see the beauty of the king. And while it might be a little marred and it might be difficult to see right now, one day we will see him because we will be like him, it says in 1 Corinthians 13. Oh, but people, that's the king that we're called to know. There is nothing more valuable to pursue after than that great king. And this summer, what do I want to do? I want to learn to fear him, but I again want to renew that love of just seeing the greatness and the grandness of Jesus. And so here's what everyone else's task is to do. As you leave here and I'm not around, it's going to go absolutely probably wonderful. I've always told people, man, I'm going to probably come back. Somebody else is going to be in my office and they're going to say, hey, dude, thanks for joining us. You can now go or something. I don't know. But while I'm away, Draw near to the king. Just draw near. Don't worry about our political environment. Don't worry about all the other things that are going on around us. Make it your endeavor this summer just to draw near to the great king. Be amazed with his beauty. Be blown away by his grandness and his greatness. Hebrews 12, right? God disciplines those loves. When you you hear the growl of God, turn around. Come back to him because he disciplines those he loves. But cornerstone, 
just draw near. Well, no, I really think I should keep watching my favorite news channel. Why? You know what they're going to tell you? The world is falling apart. Everything is going to chaos. If you don't vote for, invite, or you don't vote for, or you don't make this whatever person, your person you vote for, I promise you it's going to be chaos. Okay. King Jesus still reigns. And he is ushering in his kingdom, a kingdom that cannot be denied. And so Cornerstone, shut off that channel. Open up your word. Fall in love again and anew if you have it for a while with that great king. Come before him in trembling and fear and just see the king for who he is. As dim as it might be, catch that glimpse. For those of you that don't know Jesus, let me just say this to you. Today's the day to bend the knee. Right now, you've heard us talk. There's people all around you that know the king. If you want to know how you can know Jesus, you can come talk to any one of us up here. But the only way you will ever draw near is not by yourself. The only way to nearness to God is through Jesus. That's it. No other way. So I'm going to have all you stand up because we're about ready to sing a song. Can you put the words up of that song at the very end? Some of you are standing up like this is boring and awful to talk about the great king. My goodness. Now we're going to sing an oldie but a goodie song. It's at the very end of my slides. Do you see it? Can you put it at the very end of my slides? I know I got off my slides, but we're going to come back to them. I want you to see something. Does everybody know the song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus? You know that song? Look it. Carol's like, yay, man. She went all Pentecostal for a second. <laughs> Turn your eyes upon Jesus. I love this. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow what? Our Jesus isn't this. Our problems are this. Our king is great. In light of his glorious grace, good, that's getting better, that's getting better, I'm gonna let you clap. Now look at this, his word shall not fail you, he promised, believe him and all will be well, then go to a world that is dying, his perfect salvation to draw near, learn to fear, learn to resituate those loves, and it's time for us to talk about Jesus. Not just in here where it's safe, but out there. So, cornerstone. In the name of the Father. Gosh. Our great God who sits in unapproachable light that angels declare his glory every second of every moment of every day but yet who loved those who are his before the foundation of the world and sent his very own son. So in the name of the son who died so that we might draw near to this great God through his work on the cross, the empty tomb, and even today as he sits at the right hand of the father. And in the name of the spirit, 
who made our hearts new and alive. He took out that old stony heart and put in that new one so that we might be able to understand and hear from and embrace that great king so that we might fear him rightly and love him above all other things. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, cornerstone, draw near. Draw near. Draw near to your king. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.